Okay, so right back at it right where I left off. Let's see what the boys have to say today. They're talking about the cruelty of evolution. Teleological argument number 46. Let's see how much I can do today. Of evolution. So this is another interesting one. The evolu evolution by natural selection is a cruel and painful process. I don't think anyone can argue with that. Uh, or maybe Craig, because animals don't feel pain or something. But uh, God would not use a cruel and painful process to create life. Life emerged in natural selection, therefore God did not create life. Evolution by natural selection is a cruel and painful process. True. If it were a reality, it would be true. It's not. Uh, evolution is uh, not the case. Creationism is the case. So we don't need to worry about all those millions of years of evolution because they just didn't happen. Premise two, God would not use a cruel and painful process to create life. That is true. Number three, life emerged through natural selection. That is false. You can't get life from non-life. I don't care what your process is. If your process is natural, it ain't happening. You can't give what you don't have. The principle of proportionate causality. Look it up, boys. So, of course, um, one and three are basically inarguable. So everything's going to hinge on premise two here. And I think an, like an omnibenevolent God very plausibly would not use a cruel and painful process to create life. So I think that this is a very, uh, very plausible argument. So again, if we use Craig in standards, how plausible is premise two there? I think it's a lot more plausible than not. And so we have reason to accept the conclusion here. Given I don't know why uh, they emphasize uh, William Lane Craig so much, I guess, because James Fodor, however you say his name, Fodor, Fodor, uh, wrote a book, maybe multiple books on William Lane Craig. But uh, I don't agree with William Lane Craig because he's not Catholic and uh, some of his views, some of his theology is just wacky and weird. Not because he's a Protestant, just because that's the rabbit hole he went down with his own particular worldview. That one and three are basically um, indisputable. Nice guy, though. I like him. Unless uh, the Calvinists, of course, because it glorifies him most. In which case, hmm, I, right. don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it's worth eternal conscious torment, to be honest, like to just say, like, wow, that guy's a dick and rebel. Um, I don't think that the payoff, <laughs> you know, like justifies it, but but it's still pretty strong, you know, like, like I don't think I could really force myself. If, if I was committed to, like, you know, the process which glorifies this God most is like all this horrendous, um, like, like horrendous struggle for existence between like animals that, that like emerging into intelligence as well and, and then with this weird stuff happening to them. If God's a dick, to use the colloquial term that you used, then don't worship him. Don't worship any God that is inferior to you in any way or that is imperfect in any way. It's not rocket science. So the Calvinists are wrong about God. They have a misconception about God, just like all the false religions do, even though even the monotheistic religions have false conceptions of God. They attribute things to God that should not be attributed to God. Uh, the Calvinists are no different in that way. Only the Catholic saints... And preeminently Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and maybe St. John the Baptist, really understood uh, what to attribute to God and what not to attribute to God. Uh, not completely and comprehensively in the case of uh, the saints, the human, merely human saints, but Jesus, the God-man, obviously knows exactly what to attribute to God and what not to attribute to God. And I think Mary has a pretty... Uh, infallible application of that wisdom uh, because she is by the graces of her son she is in a very very unique situation full of grace then i'd be like wow that guy is a dick but um did you see the deflate video that was a response to cosmic skeptics veganism argument about about evolution and animals in nature no i didn't so he, he was, was saying he was, he was just saying, rejecting the idea that um, animals are actually suffering and saying that the vast majority of um, life for animals that exist in nature is just happiness and playing and having fun. 
Um, and he basically based it all off this one guy who was um, a biologist of some sort in the field. And like this quote from him saying, like, in all my work in the field, it just seems that animals in a state of nature are like enjoying themselves or whatever. And he was like, so cosmic skeptic here is completely wrong to assert that animals are suffering. Like, Animals do suffer and that suffering is evil because health, it's a de deprivation of health, which is a good, one of the goods. But we needn't lose any sleep over it. God cares about all his creatures, all his creation. And, and, and there's no, there's absolutely no risk of any animal burning in hell, right? They, they can't merit heaven or hell. There's no praise, there's no blame attributable to them in the sense that uh, humans can be praised and blamed because we have free will and reason. The animals, the lower animals, do not have that. So we can praise them. You're a good boy, you're cute, you're, you're pretty, whatever you want to say to your pet, that's fine. We can praise them in that way. There's sort of an anthropomorphism happening and there's also just a, uh, an honest assessment of uh, the goodness of God, the way he gave beauty and function and form to his creatures, these lower animals. So we can praise them in that uh, in that sense, but we can't attribute any sort of morality. We can't assign any sort of morality to these lower animals. It's ridiculous. It's really, yeah. That's a really strange argument to make. I mean, animals in the state of nature are mostly just playing around. I mean, it seems that they're often in a state of heightened alert because they're worried about being eaten or getting enough food or suffering various diseases. I just don't know how you get that from. Yeah, but he's got the, but well, that guy who's a field biologist, his quote that most of the time it just seems to him that animals are having fun. And <laughs> That's probably facial, I guess. <laughs> yeah, see, seemings are believings or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there may be a naturalistic fallacy going on there as well. But uh, yeah. okay, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess we could respond to that separately at some point. But I, just, I like, I just don't think that's true. Like, when I even if I just go for like a walk around my neighborhood, like there's all these geese along the canal, and they're just like fighting every day to like get like little bits of bread, and like there's all these ducks mm -hmm. just constantly raping each other and stuff like that. Like it's horrible. <laughs> like, and yet you would want to say that you you are an ape, you are an ape, and that we are just apes. We're animals. We we belong to each and every one of these clades as you go all the way back to the quote unquote first clade. And uh, you want to teach that there's no such thing as sexual perversion, unless it's just some really, really extreme uh, mixture of uh, sex and violence, like uh, torturing and raping children, you'd probably be against that. Uh, do you have a philosophical basis for that opinion? No, you don't. But you're against it just because you want to fit in with your peers, right? That's it. There's just this lingering judeo-christian sense of morality that you've you've got this just the slightest wafting remnant odor of the judeo-christian rational morality that's just sort of subtle but it is permeating and you want to cling to uh, some remnant of this mor morality that's why uh, you atheists are willing you're not able but you're willing to make moral judgments from my from my point of view i wouldn't want to live like these geese and ducks and uh oh and like like rats as well and i see like drowned rats in the canal all the time and stuff like that so. no that's yeah but it's okay to kill babies in the womb okay yeah i, I think it's interesting Sorry, put, a, put a downer on that. Yeah, let's get going of course there's a modal form of that so it's possibly necessary but we're not using cool and paper process uh bias five and so forth and so forth and abductive form so um best just for you those of you who didn't watch episode one, their use, I would say, abuse of the modal form of argumentation is completely inappropriate. It's not applicable. You can't just say, oh, this might be 
possibly necessary. So because it's possible, it's necessary. You can't do that. You need to prove rationally that the only way a being or a proposition cannot be the case, cannot be true or cannot be, cannot have being, is if it's logically impossible. That's the only way. And they haven't established that with any of their modal arguments. Not one. Explanation for the emergence of life via a cool and paper process is that life arose spontaneously, or you know, not at least not designed by uh, God, which is what I mean by spontaneously. There, I think that's probably the strongest formulation of the argument here. Very strong reason to believe that life arose spontaneously, meaning it was not created by a God. Again, if you didn't watch episode one, there's no need to pay attention to all the different forms of argumentation. If they put it into the modal form, the abductive form, the inductive form, and the, uh, all these different forms, uh, the Bayesian form, they don't uh, they don't need to do this. They're just doing it to bloat their numbers. So instead of having uh, roughly 100 arguments, now they can say they have 500. Uh, and of course, the Bayesian form, uh, same as usually is. All right, the lack of teleology in nature. Well, a seed desires to become a tree. Um, I've heard this one recently. <laughs> seed who said that? Um, so I think it was like, you know, the, the Aristotelian, um, sorry, the Aquinas, which is Aristoteleology argument, which is kind of like, um, it's like that seeds and things have like a knowledge of what they're going to become because they like desire towards it, but they, they can't like have that knowledge in themselves. So they must've been like given it by, by God. Um, I mean, like I'm butchering the way that the argument's actually laid out there, but, um, huh. yeah, I, th I think it was someone who was, who was riffing God. Well, not, they were parodying it. Someone who was like legitimately committed to this, like Aquinas. Um, is it his fourth way? The fifth way is degrees of being. So maybe, or maybe I don't know which way is which. Yeah. It's the fourth <laughs> or fifth way. <laughs> Uh, just so you know, I'm letting all of the, this inane conversation play out, but I'm running it at 1.5 uh, velocity. And and yeah, it's, it's just that like there's there's like a knowledge in things that they couldn't have had themselves. They would have had to be like set towards that end by God, like a like a seed towards becoming a tree. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess it does depend here on how you understand teleology, which isn't really defined here. But it kind of just seems like all of the species is just doing their best to survive in an evolutionary sense. Like, I, I don't, and in that sense, it's not clear that there's any directness to it, um, which is what premise one's trying to get at here. Teleology is the, is the science of understanding ends. Everything is created with an end in mind, a purpose in mind. That's obvious. Um, it doesn't seem to be trying to achieve anything other than just like not not go extinct. I mean, and I guess you could call that a teleology of a sorts, but that's not what, that's it, not it what seems I had really, one here. It seems kind of, to, to me at least, it seems more like a deterministic algorithm type thing, where yeah. like, you know, like there's just like death if you don't fit the ecological niche and survival if you do, and then you reproduce and there's more like, <laughs> there doesn't seem to be much too much more to it than that. Yeah. Wow, what a wonderful worldview you have with your Darwinianism, uh, post-Darwinianism, neo-Darwinianism, post whatever you want to call it. It's just nonsense. And it, and it just keeps yeah. going. That, that's the sense in which there's lack of teleology here. Uh, that, that's the sense of premise one here. And if God created the natural world, there will be clear evidence of teleology, um, which I think is plausible enough. Um, and yeah, so God did not create the natural world, and Christianity claims that he did, so Christianity is false. Oh my god. Premise one is false. There is clear evidence of teleology in nature. Everything was created with an end or a purpose in mind. You see a building, you can understand from the architecture what was going on in the mind of the architect. If you're awake, if you're alert, if you have your wits about you. It is possibly necessary that if God created nature, there would be clear evidence of teleology in nature. Okay, this is just uh, the modal form, okay? So they're going through this nonsense. And there's a modal form of that, as always, and there's a Bayesian form of that, as always. The Bayesian form just uh, tries to set up probabilities where we can argue one thing's more prob probable than another. But in when it comes to proofs, 
of the existence of God, there's no room for probabilities. As I said in my episode one, if you haven't listened to episode one, you might want to go and listen to that because I don't want to repeat all this basic stuff. The argument from cognitive biases. Now, this is an argument that I came across as well, which I think is kind of interesting. So humans experience a wide range of cognitive biases to make our cognitive faculties often unreliable. I think that's pretty much established now by science. If humans are created by God, they would not experience such a wide range of cognitive biases. God presented claims that humans were created by God. So yeah, exactly. So God wouldn't create our faculties in a way such that we were regularly and consistently deceived in many different contexts. Not in every context, but at least in enough in a wide range. Um, so um, I think that this is actually quite quite an interesting point here. Um, Says who? I mean, who who are you to say that God would not allow for error, for uh, abuse of free will? Who are, who are you to say that? I mean, it's manifest, if you look around you, that we have cognitive biases, if you want to use that term. It's manifest. I blame that on the fall, and I blame the fall on the abuse of free will, which is good. Free will is good. The abuse is not good. So these arguments against Christianity and particularly against God just don't hold any water if you understand who and what God is. And of course you can make a modal form of that and an inductive form of that. So humans have a large number of common devices to make effective stuff unreliable. This is unexpected. Um, therefore, we have reason to believe that God does exist, which is false in this case. Um, and an abductive form, the best explanation of why we have so many biases is that humans evolved by natural forces without divine guidance. Because if we didn't have divine guidance, you would expect that God would want us to be our belief forming faculties to be regularly and consistently truth conducive. Um, people were just talking before in the chat about how inaccurate a lot of um, Plato's, well, Plato and Aristotle's uh, metaphysics were and, and the worldviews that you see discussed in the Bible and so forth. Um, but it's just, I mean, God could have done that, but it's not really clear why he would have. And it seems that he'd want us to, again, if the whole point is to like, you know, exercise your free will or whatever, then you want to be able to do that better by forming more accurate beliefs about the effect of your actions and so forth. Okay. Uh, before we move on, uh, just saying hi to Jay. Hello, brother. God bless you. Can you please clear your screen a little bit? Clear your screen. What does that mean? Does that mean my, uh, does that mean my, does that mean my camera is dirty? Or does that mean... I've got too much on the screen. Let's just wipe the screen here and see. I'll wipe my camera. Is what you're talking about? Jay, well, you could tell me in the live chat. Nope. Use your words, Jay. Use your words. Letter. Make a, make a whole entire sentence for me. Are you talking about the legibility of these slides? Because uh, I didn't put together the slideshow. You'll need a bigger screen. Um, you can either type, Jay, you can either type in a more complete explanation of what it is you want from me, or you can just sort of deal with what you got. Don't, you, don't give me one word answers. Excuse me, audience, while I talk to Jay. Try to explain more accurately using great full sentences. Thanks. Moving on now. Who, who was the um, one prophecy fails in cognitive dissonance guy? Um, Festberg. Festinger. Yeah. Festinger. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, Festinger. You'll notice a lot of name dropping uh, with Nathan and James. They seem to be impressed with themselves that they've read so many brilliant atheists and their arguments and how they formulated all these arguments. And uh, you know, they'll be they'll be name dropping throughout this entire presentation, probably. Yeah, just, uh, interesting. It, it, it's also interesting how um, 
how much cognitive biases do play a role in sort of like doomsday cults and like the origins of like religions and the end times coming, which is, you know, sort of what Christianity is an example of. Not that that, um, yeah, not that, not that that has too much pertinence to this argument specifically. It's, it's just a, an interesting side point. Yeah, so I also think that that's a, that's a quite interesting argument. And of course, there's a Bayesian form. Humans experience a large number of cognitive biases, more likely under atheism than under theism. All right, now this is another one that I picked up. The argument from revulsion against natural laws. I think this is... Um, uh, Philippe Leon, or is it, which way is it? Is it Leon Philippe or Philippe Leon? Uh, Philippe Leon. <laughs> Philippe Leon, <laughs> yeah. Because I know someone called Leon and I'm just getting them confused. Yeah, yeah. Um, is, I don't even know, um, I, I, I don't know that much about him, but he's, he's coming on my channel for an interview in, oh, awesome. in, a, in a week, I think, actually, yeah. So. Yeah, that'll be fine. But anyway, I think this was his argument here. So he says, I am rightly repulsed by various horrors of the natural world. Um, if the natural world is created by God, I would not be rightly repulsed by various horrors of the natural world. According to theism, God created the world, so theism is false. We live in a fallen world. If you don't get it, I mean, I suggest you pick up a newspaper or if you're new school, go on the internet, look at the news. If you can find a news source that's reporting nothing but good news, then uh, congratulations. But most of the news reflects the fact, the self-evident fact that we live in a fallen world where we have abused and continue to abuse the good gift of free will, which we were given by our all good creator. So. I'm horrified by sin, not only by sin, but, but by the consequences of sin, both original sin and actual sin. The consequences of original sin, the consequences of actual sin, they surround us. We, can, we cannot deny it. So the idea he had in mind is, well, different aspects of the natural world. So I think, trying to remember, so one of the ones that he mentioned, I think, is... Um... And every evil, every evil that we see around us is a consequence of sin, original and actual. What is it called? Like, uh, the species that... Um... The species that eat their mates during cannibalism? What's that called again? Oh, the spiders. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, there's a word for that I don't term. mean... So, why, I've got, like, self-immolations to my head, which is setting yourself on fire, like those Buddhist monks. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, so there's oh. filial... Uh, yeah, so sexual cannibalism is what that's called. There's also filial cannibalism, where adults eat their offspring in certain, in certain situations. Uh, <laughs> there's well normal as, cannibalism. <laughs> as well as infanticide. Uh, oh, there's also intrauterine cannibalism. Oh, the other, the Multiple other embryos ones. are impregnated, but only one are born. The large ones consume their less developed siblings as a source of nutrients. I mean, the, the cannibalism one, I think we find naturally repulsive. Um, and I don't know what our reasons are for finding cannibalism repulsive, whether that's just like, um, you know, whether that's because of our culture, because some human cultures have been into cannibalism, or whether there's like an evolutionary thing there, because like there's all sorts of weird diseases you get from like eating the nervous system of like your own species or whatever. But um, the other thing I'm thinking of are like all these goofy like parasites and that, hor that horrible wasp that like lays its uh, eggs in, you know, like the head of like another insect or um, like bot flies. Um, you know, things, things that just lay their eggs inside of other creatures and then they have to eat their way out as like, yeah, yeah, that's another example. They're all gross. Guinea worms, those sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and intestinal worms as well. Uh, those are just so disgusting. Yeah. If, boys, if you're disgusted and horrified by the various horrors of the natural world, as you call them, then just wait till you see what Satan has in store for you in hell. It ain't pretty. Yeah, so the idea here is that it, it, the argument doesn't attempt to explain why we find these repulsive, just that we are right to regard them as repulsive, in whatever <laughs> yeah. sense you want to appropriate or, or whatever you, you, want to, you want to regard that. Another obvious point here is that if one configuration of matter, energy, and space-time is better than another, for example, health is better than sickness, and uh, having bodily integrity is better than being eaten from the inside out by a bunch of worms and parasites, if one configuration is better than another configuration in any way, then you know with certainty that your atheistic worldview is false. You've been sold uh, down the river by Satan and his minions, and that God does exist. And, uh, it's not too late. You can repent and believe the good news.
and uh, change your life for the better. Start pursuing virtue. Not only the natural virtues, but the supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity, first and foremost. And that wouldn't be the case if God created the natural world. Oh, viruses that give you pneumonia in your lungs. And... <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you could make a fall argument here as well, but again, you can just push back. Why did God create a universe on the teetering of falling into a situation where there's all of these horrific horrors? So I don't, I don't think that's very good. Well, because the only way you can love God is to love God freely. The only way you can love your pet dog is to love your pet dog freely. The only way you can love anything is to love freely. Otherwise, you're just a robot a monkey bot going through the motions in a hard determinist world it means nothing. Go over the counter. All right. And that concludes the teleological arguments. So to summarize, it's basically a combination of like bad design, horrific design, painful design. Um, and um, also the cognitive biases or like, why would he create us so that we're so confused and confusing laws of nature sort of thing. But All of this is easily dismissed by two facts. One, God is good. And two, Everything that God does is good. Everything he created is good. Every gift he gives is good, including free will. But free will is, by its very nature, subject to the possibility of abuse. Was that abuse inevitable? I think so. I don't know what the theologians say. I don't know what the church teaches on that. I believe it was absolutely inevitable that the creatures who were given free will would fall. A certain percentage of them, a certain percentage of the angels fell. And with humans, we have a much more merciful situation where we were allowed to fall and then uh, repent. The fallen angels cannot repent. Why? I have no idea, but I know that God is good and that's the way he ordained it. So it's good. Two, two um, ways those, those could have been bolstered, though. I, th I think um, analogical argument parodies and and like those, those Aquinas type arguments, which are appealing to like specifically like weird under, a weird understanding of what like like things possessing knowledge to be like aimed towards an end, like, you know, like an acorn seed desiring to grow into a tree or whatever. And you could just kind of be like, well, well, no, that's, you know, like our understanding of DNA and stuff like basically reduces that to a essentially mechanical right. chemical process. And so like it doesn't have like a knowledge in it where it knows it wants to become a tree. Unless I, I guess you could say like, well, the DNA code and codes and knowledge. But I, th I think there's something to be said of that where you could just like, you know, like deny one of the premises, run it the opposite way and get to the alternative conclusion. In terms of the desire, uh, he's so horrified and repulsed by this notion of desire existing in non-sentient or uh, I guess plants are sentient. So um, in the sense that they have senses, not the full uh, senses that an animal would have, much less a human. But uh, Nathan seems repulsed by this idea of attributing will to uh, a non-human, right? Uh, well, two things. What, what's the philosophical basis that you have for attributing will to a human? Uh, and what is, what is a philosophical basis for making any distinction whatsoever between a human and a non-human? And then from the Catholic perspective, we say that, uh, you know, your dog and your cat and your houseplant do have a will. And uh, in a certain sense, a stone could be said to have will in that Aristotelian sense. But what distinguishes humans from other non-human creatures is that uh, we alone have a rational will. Among material creatures, we alone have a rational will. And that rational will, there's a special name for that. It's called free will. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, more arguments for the next version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ontological arguments. So these are some of my favorite, just because ontological arguments for the existence of God are, I think, very silly. And so like, <laughs> it gives an opportunity for some interesting parody arguments. All right. Nothing silly about the ontological arguments. Nothing silly at all about the ontological arguments. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. The modal library for atheism. <laughs> it is possibly necessary that God does not exist. Uh, this is, again, this modal abuse. Their constant and unremitting abuse of the modal form of argumentation. Premise one, it is possibly necessary that God does not exist. That's false. It is absolutely necessary that God does exist. We know this. Using pure reason without recourse to faith, revelation, or anything else. Just using pure reason. We know that God is necessary. He, he alone absolutely is. He has being in a way that none of his creatures have being. So it is an abuse of the modal form of argumentation to say that it's possibly necessary that God does not exist. This is this is the very heart and root of the absurdity of atheism. It calls up, down, left, right, good, evil, and uh, it inverts everything. There's absolutely zero respect given to logic, to reason, to philosophy. In, in among all these 500 or whatever the number is, arguments against Christianity, against the Christian God, there is no respect given to logic, to reasoning, or to philosophy. It's sad. It's embarrassing. Jay is saying in the comment in the live chat that they're, uh, sorry to say, but animals have, <clears throat> animals have no soul. Well, not a rational soul. But if we think about the Catholic dogma, which was proclaimed at the Council of Vienna, Vienna, however you pronounce that, V-I-E-N-N-E, that dogma is that the soul of the human being is the form of the body of the human being. The soul is the form of the body. Okay, So this harkens back to, I'm not saying it's completely Aristotelian, but it harkens back to the Aristotelian notion of the soul, where the tension in the violin string is the soul of the violin. Right, it's a function and form, and the the way that this uh, <clears throat> body, the body of the violin, uh, has a certain tension in it, and this is the soul of that instrument. Without which, there would be no possibility of having music. This is just an analogy that Aristotle used, but I think it's a very colorful one, an interesting one. And animals do have a soul in that Aristotelian sense. Now, if you're not comfortable saying using the word soul for non-human animals, that's fine. But bear in mind that the Catholic Church does teach dogmatically, infallibly, that the human soul, the rational soul of the human being, is the very form of the body. This is why we know that creationism is true and all the evolutionary theories are false, including theistic evolution. Why well, it's fine. If it is possible necessary that God does not exist, then God does not exist. Hence, God does not exist. Because obviously, I mean, so... This is the standard conception of God's existence, right? It's necessary. So it's it, either God exists necessarily or he doesn't exist necessarily. So just as Craig does, I'll leave it to you. Do you think it's possible that God does not exist? Because if you do think it's possible that God does not exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God doesn't exist. No. If you, if you think that it's possible that God does not exist, you haven't understood what you're talking about, right? You just have not understood what we're talking about when we talk about God. Because what we're talking about when we talk about God 
is the necessary being. It's that than which nothing greater can be conceived. It's the uncaused first cause, etc. and so on. We could, we could talk about it in many different philosophical terms. But it has never, ever been a part of classical theism or monotheism to even speculate about the possibility that God could not exist. It's not on the table. It's never been on the table. So if, as I said in a recent interview with, I think, with Chad or someone, if you, as an ostensible Christian, admit that you are not certain about the existence of God, then whether you like it or not, you strayed, not only from Jesus Christ, you strayed from classical theism, you strayed from monotheism. And uh, luckily, we have a God who's merciful and kind, and he understands invincible ignorance. Not everyone has studied philosophy, not everyone has thought deeply about contingency and necessity. So you don't need to worry. I'm not worried about your eternal salvation. Excuse me. But it is nonetheless the case that if you think it's possible God doesn't exist, you do not understand God. And of course, I'm speaking in an understanding of God that is not comprehensive. You've plumbed the depths of God and you know comprehensively everything that is to be known about God because no creature has that privilege. The closest would be, uh, well, I was going to say Mary, but I suppose if you talk about Jesus's human nature, which God took upon himself, I mean, obviously that, uh, I, I want to be careful with my wording here, but I think that the, the, it's obvious that the, Human nature is a creature. Jesus's human nature is a creature. So there's that one exception where a creature can know the depths of God. But even there, <clears throat> I'm not sure how that uh, how that plays out. What the church teaches about that. Jay here in the live chat says, "How on early he claimed that God doesn't exist. I think some atheist doesn't want to acknowledge God because of their sinful nature." What do you think, brother? Yes, I agree 100%. I was an atheist for most of my adult life. And the nagging suspicion that I'm a sinner and that God exists was always there lurking in the shadows on the back burner. And it was a real relief to come back to God because uh, running away from God is silly, it's foolish, it's selfish, it's... It promises pleasures, but it doesn't really satisfy. Our our hearts are restless until they repose in God. Because that's how his fire works. Boom. When they say boom, that's the sound of their dead souls tumbling into the abyss. I'm just being dramatic here, but I mean, these people need to wake up. We don't know how long we have, right? I mean, we could perish in an instant. So it's of the utmost importance to stop joking around and to get right with God before the judgment. Asking's ontological language for atheism. This is one oh, that I really like. The greater the handicap of the creator, the more impressive the achievement. The most formidable handicap would be non-existence. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being is one who creates everything while not existing. Oh. This non-existent creator is God, therefore God does not exist. The greater the handicap of the creator, the more impressive the achievement. 
this is this is a serious is this a serious proof against Christianity and the God of Christianity? I don't know who this Gasking guy is, but he's not too bright, is he? Doesn't what, what is it that Craig, Craig says? There's a contradiction in this, right? That um, that it doesn't exist and exists. Um, no, there's no contradiction because we're not saying that God exists and doesn't exist. We're saying that He creates without existing. Yeah, yeah. The, the non-existent creator, creator is God. So yeah, so God doesn't exist. Uh, yeah, I see. I see. What, I see what you mean. But that's what I'm pretty sure that's what Craig <laughs> says, though. He's saying that you know, like God exists in order to be the non-existent creator and doesn't exist. So there's like a contradiction. Because I think that's where he goes. We're just predicating uh, properties of the non-existent creator. You can predicate of non-existent entities, just like we do with Santa Claus, right? So there's no contradiction there. And well, this, nor is it like contradictory where, to say that a non-existent God creates because there's no logical contradiction between God doesn't exist and God creates the universe. Not, those don't logically contradict each other. The only thing you could say is that it's metaphysically impossible for a non-existent being to create. But then that's just begging the question against the non-existent God creation theist proponent, right? That's just that's just question begging because they're just saying that God doesn't exist and creates the universe. So, so I think um, there's something there's an interesting like meta point here about like the the general dialogue um, between like theists and atheists and philosophers and stuff. Um, and so there's this channel that makes um, clips from philosophy lectures, and there's one that they've thank you. V. There's one um, a Graham Priest one where he's talking about nothing, and it's like five minutes of him sort of like saying things that sound really silly about nothing. But then he's like, you know, like like nothing doesn't exist, nothing doesn't have existence. But I went to the fridge, and there was nothing in the fridge. Nothing <laughs> yeah. was in the fridge. Nothing. But as I was like listening to this over time and going more and more crazy, I started to think that this actually does sound like when theists try and like describe God and like add credits yeah. to it and stuff. It, it genuinely does seem to me like it, they're like creating like nothing, like they're just negating all of this stuff that we can actually point to and be like, you know, like material extended, did it? and they're just going, no, not that, not that, not that, and like. Um, it's like they've defined like a nothing to any of the omniscience. Any of the- oh my god, uh, so embarrassing, Nathan. You claim to have been a Christian. You claim, therefore, to have been a monotheist. You claim to be a, a learned man who studies philosophy. This is metaphysics one hundred and one. This is classical theism one hundred and one. God preeminently exists. He is being. He is being. You are nothing. God is everything. You, Nathan, are nothing. You, James, are nothing. I, David, am nothing. God is. That's why in the Old Testament, when Moses met God, he said, I am. I am that I am. These people have no clue what they're talking about. They want to build something from nothing the way God does. But God is not nothing. You are nothing. He created you out of nothing, and he sustained he sustains you in being a relative being, not an absolute being. You are nothing. He is everything. He is. He has being. Omnipotence is often defined in uh, as a negation because they say it's the absence of limits on power or the absence of limits on knowledge. So it's even like you that's often defined nothing. in a negative term. Yeah, it, it's like impossible to like disprove nothing. Like they're literally just saying nothing. But I, I mean, I don't know how this. What I'm saying here is actually even relevant to what we're what we're saying. But I think I think maybe this parody can like bring out some of those weird intuitions about what's actually going on in these theistic arguments. Yeah. So they admit that it's just silliness and parody that they're engaged in, and I, I understand that this is obviously that one of the silliest arguments they've come up with so far doesn't even try to take itself seriously. It's tongue-in-cheek. But just if you love the truth, why don't you seek the truth? Why don't you talk about, with yourself, in your own mind, to find a quiet space and think about being a nothingness, okay? Think about freedom and responsibility. Think about contingency and necessity. Just go off in a quiet place and think about that. It'll do you a world of good. All those books behind you, boys, that you've allegedly read, parts of at least, they've filled your heads with nonsense. They've confused you. 
to the point where you can't even find a quiet space to meditate on the most fundamental aspects of metaphysics. Being, nothingness, freedom, responsibility, contingency, necessity. 20 minutes spent meditating on those concepts will yield more fruit than however many years of mental masturbation you've been engaging in with your YouTube, with your books, with your interviews, with all your discussions. Okay. Yeah, I, I really like this argument for that reason. And I made her a moderator too. I maybe should take that back. All right. Um, Platonism and divine society. So Platonism is true. Now, obviously not everyone's going to accept that, but you can appeal to all the arguments of Platonism. You can appeal to the fact that it's the most popular view among philosophers. So there's, you know, Inflexibility of numbers. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of arguments to get. If Platonism yeah. is true, then necessary objects exist independently of God. That's just what Platonism yeah. holds, right? Well, well, not neo, well, Neoplatonism, like a divine conceptualism, Platonism, like some people might say that, right? So well, that's not a standard Platonism though. Divine conceptualism is different to Platonism. Um, but anyway, if necessary objects exist independently of God, God cannot be self-sufficient. Uh, and, and this is just what Craig thinks, right? Craig thinks that if Platonism is true, necessary objects yeah. exist independently of God. And Craig thinks that if necessary objects exist independently of God, God cannot be self-sufficient. Um, so Craig agrees with premises two and three here. Um, and I guess four as well. If God cannot be self-sufficient, he does not exist, because that's just the definition of God, right? right. Um, so he just he just rejects one here. But you could argue that there's a lot of good reasons to accept one. Therefore, follows logically and inescapably that God does not exist. Yeah. Again, they're just being silly. But... Uh... I mean, if you if you hold to Christianity, then you believe that Christianity is true. And if someone comes along trying to sell you Platonism, you just have to politely point out that Platonism got all of its truths from Christianity. And all of its lies and errors do not come from the God-man Jesus Christ. They come from Satan and his minions. Or from Plato himself, or from his followers. Some errors are introduced innocently, right? Anyway, this argument is beyond silly. <laughs> this one's good. I'm an asshole. The best possible world would not include assholes. Therefore, the best possible world does not exist. <laughs> and God would only create the best possible world, right? So therefore, God does not exist. <laughs> this is not the best possible world. I debunked this in our last uh, episode one. It's a dogma of the church that God created a good world, but it's also a dogma of the church that God could have created a better world. This is not the best of all possible worlds. All is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Wait, who yeah. it, um... That's Leibniz. Who, who parodied that? Was it Voltaire? Is that yeah, the... that was Voltaire. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Voltaire's Condé. That's a great book, by the way. That's um, okay. great meaning entertaining. La... Yeah, yeah. Because that's Leibniz's theology. Yeah, Leibniz's is that idea, this yeah. is the best possible world. Yeah, and then they, and then the, the the parody is like stuff that's happening that's like plausibly true and the characters keep saying that um as it's <clears> happening right is that yeah it's, it's a very funny book where all this terrible stuff happens and you just keep saying well you know it's for the best sort of thing by the way 69 viewers nice oh it's 71 sorry <laughs> that's what's as many as cameron get. uh that book by the way was dedicated to the pope of uh voltaire's day as you know on his on his live streams sometimes oh well good job everyone and, and Bra braxton's got like 12k followers he gets similar like 100 odd uh, viewers well the atheists are just more committed <laughs> not that you have to be an atheist to listen right but you know uh, so this is just possibly necessary. The Platonism is true. Platonism is true. The necessary objects is inherently God. Necessary objects is inherently God. God comes up by so yeah, you know, you see, this is abbreviated a little bit. Sometimes I have to throw a slide in the conclusion there, but you get the idea of how it works. But by virtue of which Platonic form is Platonism true? You know, well, any of them, right? You just need a single. You just need one Platonic form to exist, and then Platonism, and then this argument goes forward. So it doesn't matter. This is the thing. People think that if you can refute this or that Platonic form or like you know uh, universals or particular forms of set theory, it does like you only need a single Platonic object to go to exist, yeah. and then the argument goes ahead. So so that makes it a lot stronger. <laughs> All right, um, Platonism and divine society, abductive. So Platonism is the best explanation of abstract objects, which a lot of philosophers agree with. If Platonism is true, theism is false, which people like Craig agree with. Therefore, we have good reason to believe that theism is false. Very simple argument there. 
I, I was thinking of like a self-referential thing, like the platonic form of Platonism as like a metaphysical theory. <laughs> well, that, that's not a contradiction. That would be like the, the platonic form yeah. that corresponds to the non-existence of or the falsity of Platonism or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's called the third man argument, I think. Argument from the contingency of minds. Um, so. I'm just trying to think, why is this an ontological argument? I think because it's an argument against his necess necessary existence. So all minds are contingent entities. God is a necessary mind, so therefore God does not exist. Yeah, it's like an essence contains existence, but um, essence... Like the opposite, a... yeah. All minds are contingent entities. Well, all created minds are contingent, but God is not a create. He's not a creature. He's the creator. Do you not understand that? This is... this. This is such a waste of time trying to refute such puerile and inane arguments, but I'm just doing it as an exercise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so to answer this question, you can see what number argument we're on in the bottom right corner. By the way, Nathan, you haven't been doing any push-ups. What's the deal with that? Oh, um, I mean, I can, I, I can do them. <laughs> got a plastic yeah. card. <laughs> how, how, many, how many are we doing? That's the question. You've not got oh, super chats that's up to chat. That's up to chat. So, uh, I don't know so, how, how do I enable super chats? Um, I don't know if you can do it live, but somewhere in Creator Studio, um, and oh, if you I'll did, later. it's fine. It's fine. You, you can save them up, guys, and donate them later. Well, I was going to do the push-up. I was going to like, you know, like get people to donate through doing the push-ups. That's that. Oh, you know, I see. I mean. Well, let me have a quick look if I can. I mean, people keep complaining. That I don't know what I'm doing, which is perfectly true because I'm still a bit <laughs> new to this. Normally, I just leech off Nathan. And he does all the work. Uh, let me see. Yeah. I'll see if I can find where I do it in my uh, YouTube Maybe studio. Grade something. Maybe under under monetization studio, and then go to monetization. Oh, supers. See, I like see yeah, I should just take a second. You, you can dropping in. So yeah, every people. How many people have we got watching? So yeah, seventy-one people watching. I, th I do think um, I think when Cameron has like a big guest on, he but Braxton generally gets about 120 there now. Um, yeah, happens. Uh, I'll, I'll hold off the press ups till the end, just in case. Because he deliberately didn't tell me until the streams probably make um make philosophical arguments in favor of that as well. So it's like, well, for any mind, you can just conceive of it not existing, right? So argument, sorry, very strong evidence in favor of this, and you can probably make um make. Uh, yeah. So in terms of premise one here, I mean, I think we've got very strong uh, argument. Sorry, very strong evidence in favor of this, and you can probably make um make philosophical arguments in favor of that as well. So it's like, well, for any mind, you can just conceive of it not existing, right? So. Um, if the relevant uh, mental combination of, of facets weren't in existence, then that mind wouldn't exist, so it's contingent. You know, you can argue something along those lines, maybe. Um, and of course, there's a modal argument, so it's possibly necessary that all minds are contingent. By one s five, all minds are contingent. God is necessary, so it doesn't exist. And there's an abductive form, all known minds are contingent. God is supposed to be a necessary mind, so we have strong evidence that he doesn't exist. And there's an abductive form, all minds, all known minds are contingent. The best explanation of why all known minds are contingent is that all minds are contingent. There aren't any necessary minds, but God is supposed to be a necessary mind, so uh, we have strong reason to think that he doesn't exist. Um, and a basic form, of course, as always. So if they knew that God is defined as the necessary mind, why did they use premise one saying that all minds are contingent? These people don't know how to think. The no maximal being argument. So this one I think is kind of interesting. Um, God is supposed to be the greatest possible being or the maximally great being. But for every great being, there is a conceivable being, which is, at, which, sorry, how do I phrase it here? There's a conceivable being with at least one more greatness making property than that being. Therefore, there yeah. cannot be a maximally great being. Therefore, God does not exist. This is so silly and stupid. I mean, you should learn how to think, people. When we say that God is infinite in every per, pure perfection, every perfection, in other words, that it's better to have than not to have, it's infinite. God's perfection is infinite. Nothing surpasses it. So even if you don't believe in God, do you understand the words that are used in the definition God. We don't define God into existence, but there is a definition of God that we can give. There are many definitions that we can give. We don't claim to understand comprehensively what God is. We haven't plumbed his depths. 
but we can talk meaningfully about God when we say he's infinite in every perfection, that it's better to have than not to have. We are saying something true about God. And if you understand the words, then you will not come up with a silly argument like this. You just won't. Because it's 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 a meaningless straw man argument. You're saying, yeah, he's the greatest, but there could be greater. Well, have you understood the definition? He's infinite in every pure perfection. Have you understood that? If not, maybe you should go and think about it, and then you will inevitably, if you're honest with yourself, you will become a monotheist. Jay says in the live chat, my brother, I will keep you in my prayers. Thank you, my brother. You too, I'll keep you in my prayers. Thanks for being here. This, this is actually pretty interesting. Um, you know, because of the way the way that, like, um, what's it called? Ont ontological, like, Anselmian ontological arguments try and, like, derive that contradiction from, like, you know, if it didn't exist, then you could conceive of one greater. And it, but, but that, I think that does implicitly depend upon, like, saying that there actually can be differences in people's conception of a maximally great being where you can, like, add properties to it or something. I don't know. That's... Oh, Jay, uh, Jay's on his way out, I think, but he said something interesting in the comments in the live chat here, only pre presupposition, nothing else. That brings to mind a couple of comments that I received on YouTube on different videos, videos I've done, videos that I've commented on, uh, I'm thinking in particular now of the atheist experience video when I called in four years ago. But different places, I've received this comment that I'm a precep. Oh, you're a precep, or he's a precep, precep. And I'm not a presuppositionalist. If anything, I'm the polar opposite of a presuppositionalist in my apologetics. I don't presuppose what I believe, I presuppose the opposite of what I believe, and then follow it to its logical conclusions. And then I'm forced by reason, by logic, to accept monotheism as absolutely true. And then I build my faith by the grace of God, and by using my free will and my reason, I'm able to upbuild my faith through my study, through my reading, through my thinking, through my speculation, prayer, sacraments. And I've determined that Christianity is true, Catholicism is the fullness of Christian truth, and uh, you can go watch my meta episodes that talk about doubt, faith, and reason. I've got two that talk about that explicitly. And I walk you through the process of becoming a monotheist, and then from there becoming Christian, and then from there becoming a Catholic. It's well-founded faith, well-founded faith that I have. Very well-founded. So well-founded that I've never, ever, ever been nervous or challenged by anyone from any other worldview. No one's been able to successfully... Un, uh, unsettle me with your arguments. The problem with 
the atheist worldview is that it does the exact opposite. It doesn't have well-founded faith. It has shoddy faith, which serves as a foundation, and they build on this shoddy faith, these faith-based faith-based beliefs. They build on that using what they think is reason and philosophy. It's a complete inversion of the one true worldview. So instead of building on pure reason and certainty, which, we, which enables us to know certain truths, and then using reason and the faith that comes from being a sincere monotheist, and building a structure of faith upon that certain foundation, what the atheist is forced to do is to build on a flimsy, shaky foundation of faith-based beliefs that they don't even, for the most part, know they've adopted. Most atheists think that they only have beliefs based on evidence. They don't know that, they, that most of their worldview is based on faith-based beliefs. So, with all their ostensible reasoning and thinking and system building and philosophizing, speculating, their open-mindedness, and even their agnosticism, it's built like a house of cards on shifting sand. It's destined to fail, it's doomed to fail, because they do not have a solid foundation. They do not build on a solid foundation. So I just wanted to mention that. Jay is just clarifying, atheists do more presuppositions than you. Please do not misunderstand me. And also Protestant, they also use presuppositions when they debate Catholics. Of course, of course, because they don't have that ultimate foundation, which is authority. In the Catholic worldview, we have pure reason, which gives us monotheism. We have history, which gives us Christianity. And then we have authority, the question of religious authority, which gives us the living magisterium, the Pope and the bishops who teach in union with him. So we have a very, very, very solid faith. There's no need for presupposition for the Catholic. But every other worldview needs to sneak in some presupposition because they have unchecked, un, uh, unknown assumptions, axiomatic assumptions. They're unaware of. Very, very, very dangerous, the project that they're engaged in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. So, in, in terms of in terms of premise two, there, how would you defend that? Well, it kind of depends on what you think greatness making properties are, right? But you can always just say, well, like God has an extra one, yeah. or like God, God. I mean, you, you could look in terms of how great he is in terms of like, well, he created this many people, so you could create an extra one of them. But maybe you say that it has to be an intrinsic property, and that's an extrinsic one. Um, but I think the only real way around this is to just say that all greatness making properties are non quantifiable, so that you can't specify like how much of them God has, because otherwise. Like it doesn't really make sense. You can just always say he has more than, than he does. Um, but, but even if that's true, you can just then add on more properties. Like it doesn't have to be... Scotus, blessed John Dunn Scotus, does a great reduction to absurdity proof for this exact question about uh, the pure perfections, as he calls them. It's short, it's sweet, and it's airtight. So go read some Blessed John Dunn's Scotus, boys. There's like, um, 
physical, I mean, I, I guess there's like physical properties that you could predicate like greatness of, right? That I don't know if it would make sense. Would you say that God has to have them, even though God's an immaterial being? And then if you're like, well, God can't have them, it, it, doesn't that kind of undermine you're maximally great? Like, because God isn't maximally great if he doesn't have a great pair of boobs, for example. Like, <laughs> The pure perfections of God are those perfections that it's better to have than not to have, as I keep saying. So having great boobs is wonderful, but it's not a perfection that it's better to have than not. Right? Depends on what nature you have. If you're a woman, great. If you're a ruler and you're trying to draw straight lines with a ruler, you don't want a great set of boobs on your ruler, right? Everything has a nature. Even God has a nature. And it's in God's nature that he has the pure perfections. All of the, per all of the pure perfections and to an infinite degree. It is wonderful and perfect to be a circle. But it's not better to be a circle than not to be a circle. So God is not a circle, even though circularity is a perfection, but it's not a pure perfection. It's an impure perfection. So when you're choosing tires for your bicycle or your car or your wheelbarrow, you want that circularity. It's appropriate to that nature, the nature of that creature, that vehicle. So you boys need to go back and read some metaphysics. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... Or is that, that, is that question four? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, is God the fastest runner, for example? Yeah, yeah. Is that the a greatest making property? Yeah. But could God have... Or, like, is, is God the best... Um... Is he a great stock, stock trader? How can you have read all those books behind you boys and not understood the fundamentals of metaphysics, ontology, epistemology? It's embarrassing. Yeah. I, 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 maybe maybe this is a great age of empires player. Maybe this undermines just um, the like a realist interpretation of like greatness or something like that. You know, maybe. Like it's, it's like well, I, I don't know. There's yeah, always room I, for more discourse on all of these, but yeah, I'm not really sure about something myself. I just think it's interesting because I don't know what like a maximally great being means, to be honest. And yeah. I think this is an argument pushing against what that might mean. Uh, and of course, then we have to have a modal form of that argument. It is possibly necessary that for every great being there. So even if it's not, maybe we don't know for sure, but possibly there could be every great being there. There is at least one conceivable property. I just, it's right at the top of my uh, comment stream by how long of the soul is. I thought it was something, so you'll see what we think of this. So probably a loneliness argument against classical theism. So I'm starting to skip. Uh, I didn't want to do this, but it's just. It's so painful, so very painful listening to these morons pontificating about stuff. They have absolutely no clue, no clue what they're talking about. No clue what they're talking about. It is so incredibly painful. God, give me patience. So yeah, I just thought this was interesting. So this is one that another one I found in my research. So you'll see what we think of this. So possibly God exists without a non-God world. So that means God could exist by himself, like sans creation, just, just God. So that's saying it's possible. So God contingently has wholly intrinsic knowledge. Uh, this means that it is possible, like contingently, in some possible worlds, there is just God, and he only knows things about himself. He doesn't know anything about the world outside of himself because there is no world outside of himself. Now, whatever whenever, is... Whenever you say sans, I always think of comic sans, the font. Uh, just to... <laughs> well, that means sans, sans serif, right? Which is the little yeah. um, thingies, um, strokes on the ends of the letters. So that's, yeah. So it's the same word, I guess, is the point. <laughs> anyway, whatever is wholly intrinsic to a being is either an essential feature of that being or an accident of them. So th this was a tricky argument to, to um, formulate in these premises, but I think it's actually quite interesting, so I'll try to explain it here. So wholly intrinsic means it's just internal to you, like not dependent on something outside of you. So that's what wholly intrinsic knowledge is. God has knowledge only of himself and not of anything outside of himself because there isn't anything outside of himself. So anything that's wholly intrinsic to a being is either an essential feature of that being, meaning it's like critical to them and you, they always have to have it, or it's an accident, which means that there's no reason for it. Right. It just sort of happened as a brute fact or something like that. Um, and, and the reason for that is because it, it can't have happened for a reason outside that being because then it wouldn't be wholly intrinsic. I'm thinking about um, 
transubstantiation, sorry, as you're talking. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know how that relates to this. Well, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the idea that, like, the essential properties of bread can change into God, but the accidental properties can remain the same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how can you change the essential properties of something? That would make it into something else. Well, because it, it does. It becomes, becomes Jesus' flesh, right? The bread and the wine. It becomes oh, yeah, Jesus. but then it's no longer bread, right? Yeah, it's, it that's, is that's Jesus, the point flesh and body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's consistent with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's actually I was just thinking about that as you were saying. Yeah, right, right. I was just thinking about that as you were saying. Um, what was I saying here? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the idea. <laughs> I'm sorry of... to derail everything. <laughs> no, that's okay. Whatever is wholly intrinsic to being is either an essential feature or an accident, which means there's no. So, so you can't. All the premise three is saying is that um, a wholly intrinsic property cannot be caused by something outside the being, because then it won't be wholly intrinsic. It will be from outside. That's what that, that's the point that's being made there. Now, premise four: no contingent property of God can be essential. Um, and um, the idea of this here is that. God exists necessarily, and so all of his properties are necessary. And so there can't be something that is a property of God that is just contingent, because that would be inconsistent with his essential nature. Um, so according to five here, so, so from all of the following, what we get is that um, possibly, it's possible because looking back to premise one, that's possibly, God has an accidental property. And that accidental property would be his knowledge um, consisting only of the fact of, uh, let me rephrase that, his accidental property is essentially whether he has knowledge of things outside of himself or not. That's just an accident, meaning that it's there's no reason for it. Under, okay, what was CT? Oh, classical theism. I think I had to just abbreviate there. Under classical theism, God is identical to his properties. So therefore, God is an accident. So this is an argument not against theism, but against classical theism. There's so much wrong with this argument, this so-called proof. I'll just pick it apart. Number one, possibly God exists without a non-world. Have you looked around? Have you looked around lately? There's a non-God world here, meaning that we have contingent beings all around us. You're one of them. James, you're another one of them, Nathan, and I'm another one of these non-God contingent beings. Look around. So it's manifest. It would be absurd to deny the manifest fact that God created a world. Okay, so one is scrapped already. It's not possible that God exists without a non-God world. It's not possible. It's manifest that God created us. Did God need to create us? No. So in that sense, you know, God could have not created, but it's not possible that he did not create because we're manifest. Number two, so, meaning therefore, God contingently has wholly intrinsic knowledge. There's nothing contingent about God's knowledge. There's nothing contingent about God's knowledge, period. So two is scrapped. Number three, whatever is wholly intrinsic to a being is either an essential feature of that being or an accident. You don't understand what essence, the distinction between essence and accident. An essence talks about what inheres in itself, an accident inheres in an essence or a substance. Right? You've misdefined accident in this proof. Not in the text here, but in, the, in your explanation of it when you were dwelling on number three. Number four, no contingent property of God can be essential. Obviously, the contingent is not an essential property of God. Obviously. What's your point? Number five, so, meaning therefore, possibly, God has an accidental property. God took on flesh, he became man, he took on accidental properties. He had a certain skin color, height, and all the rest. But God, in his divine nature, not in his human nature, but in his divine nature, doesn't have accidental properties. We've already discussed that. 
Under classical theism, number six, under classical theism, God is identical to his properties. Correct. Well, what's your point? Number seven, therefore God is an accident. No, God inheres in himself. He inheres in his own substance. And his substance, his essence, is identical to his properties. And his essence is existence. So this is a real hot mess here, conflating uh, the, the technical term accidental with uh, the colloquial sense of accidental, and conflating God's essence with what you are assuming to be contingent knowledge. There's no basis for that. If you understand who and what God is, and you understand the distinction between philosophical essence and accident. This is just a complete hot mess here. Right. And by an accident, it just means that there's no reason for God's existence effectively. Every accident has a reason for its being. This is the principle of sufficient reason. Every accident, there's a reason why the sky is blue. Okay, it has to do with the, the essence of that creature, which is the earth, and in particular the sky. There's a reason why my hair is brown, or whatever color it is. It has to do with the substance in which it inheres, right? My hair. What's the nature of hair? What is the nature of hair? There is a sufficient reason for my hair color. There's a sufficient reason for every accident. And there's a sufficient reason for every substance, every essence. There is, in fact, a sufficient reason for everything and everyone. So this is, once again, Metaphysics 101. You guys really need to brush up. Or it's just a brute fact, not, not a necessary fact. Which is supposed to be a contradiction because God is not a accident, right? So this is supposed to be a reductio against classical theism. This is not my argument. This is, I don't remember who, um, this is this is a, taken from a, a paper by a philosopher. So um, it, it's quite sort of technical. So maybe I won't try to explain it again because I feel like I just did the best job I could. But ha have a read of it. It's called the Aloneness Argument. It's kind of interesting. It, it's supposed to be a, a reductio against classical theism, which says that God is identical to his properties, which I think is a silly position anyway because it doesn't really make any sense. But um, there's a lot of classical theists around, so this would be an argument against. It doesn't make sense to you because you're a creature and you're assuming that God is just a big man. That he's. <laughs> his, uh, that he's contingent and that he's comprised of a whole bunch of accidental features I will I will look into the accident how do accidents relate to the essence of God because obviously God created natures that have accidental properties. So I, I will look into that. It's an interesting question. How does that relate to the essence of God? It's an interesting question. But you boys haven't really understood what an accident is. An accident is something that a property that inheres in a substance. An essence is that substance, right? Against that formulation. All right, let's move on here. So that was all of the ontological arguments. So often they were like parodies of the theistic ontological arguments or attempts to deduce like contradictions in the nature of God or his necessity or something like that. Now we're moving on to um, theological arguments regarding theism. 
So these are basically aspects of the specific aspects of the nature of God that are supposed to be contradictory evidence for their non-existence, but not about Christianity specifically. All right, the incompatible properties argument. So this is an old one. Um, the properties of the God of classical theism are mutually contradictory. Uh, you don't really have to say classical theism here, I guess. You can just say the theistic God. Uh, the if the properties of God of classical theism are contradictory, God does not exist, so God does not exist. By definition, the properties or attributes of God of classical theism, aka monotheism, are not mutually contradictory. They're not. That's the whole point. That's the entire point of classical theism, is that it deduces without any reference to faith or revelation. It deduces using pure reason the attributes of God and that those attributes are identical among themselves and identical with God. Is that counterintuitive to you? Do you find that bewildering? Do you find that weird because you, as a finite creature, see justice and health and beauty and goodness and truth and unity as different things to be treated separately? Is that what's confusing your little brain? Because with philosophy, you're supposed to go beyond the obvious, beyond what's intuitive to you as a creature. You're supposed to go to beyond to find the truth, the ultimate and absolute and unchanging truth. How do you look yourself in the mirror and say that you are a lover of wisdom, a philosopher? It's embarrassing. Now, obviously, this is going to deny one, but sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, which which properties are we saying are contradictory in this argument? Because it's going to, you know, that is going to kind of depend on a particular model of God, right? Well, yeah, and I think that's maybe why I threw in, um, I threw in classical theism here because uh, is it like the yeah, the only attribute? It's more well defined. Or... It's well defined in classical theism that all of the attributes of God are identical among themselves and identical with God. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to remember. I think I put some examples later on as to things oh, okay. that I typically put uh, mentioned. Let me see if I can find that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe that I, I've not thought too hard about the contradictory ones, but I certainly have thought about like um, either them just not making any sense to me whatsoever, like what omniscience or omnipotence even means. Or um, the other thing is like um, inconsistent sets of beliefs. So for example, like theists will want, or classical theists will want to say that like God's omniscient, right? So he knows all propositions. But then they'll also want to say that there are souls with like qualia. But then, the, and then, and they'll also want to believe that God is like distinct from the, you know, because they're, they're making like a creator creative distinction. So they're not pantheists. And then there's like an issue for this because they're believing that God's like omniscient. So he like has all of the qualia knowledge of your like private soul first person experience. But then he also like isn't you, like a pantheist would believe. And, and so there's like some kind of like tension between all these like things that they want to believe about the way the world is. Um, God, it is true. God knows my experience better and more thoroughly, more completely, more comprehensively than I do or than uh, any scientist could or any shrink for that matter could. Better than my wife, my mother, my best friend. Okay? That's true. Because God knows everything. He, there, there are no, absolutely no limitations to God's knowledge. Right. So there's no contradiction implied by that fact. He's omniscient. Okay. My self-knowledge, my self-awareness is very limited because I'm a finite, finite and fallen creature. I don't know about... Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, I think it is quite hard to understand it. And we just mentioned this before, how, how all the properties fit together. But in terms of some of them that... Um, seem plausible so, so so one would be uh, divine society and creation um or or the fact that god has purposes i suppose really any purpose to be honest um would seem to contradict with the idea that he's self-sufficient because i don't know how you have a purpose to 
just being what you are doesn't you can't have a purpose to just be what you are it doesn't really make sense like the purpose is always about doing or changing or, or making something i guess uh, your purpose flows from your essence god's essence is goodness love beauty truth justice that flows from him yeah, so oh yeah god being outside of time so someone's saying like god being immutable and having libertarian free will but i also think like yes god being unchanging and like the idea that god made decisions to like create and stuff like that yes or, so immutability like, and and yeah there's a distinction that needs to be made between the internal and the external. Like what happens in the life of the Trinity, there's no free will there. God does not love himself freely. God loves himself of necessity. Again, read Blessed John Duns Scotus for an excellent summary of that. What he does uh, at extra is free, perfectly free. God is freedom. Creating. Um, and... Um... What else was I going to say? There was another one I had in mind. Um, oh, yeah. So God being, well, I was going to say God being a person, although classical theism, I don't know that they exactly accept that. But regardless, this would just be a different conception of God. So God being a person and God being timeless um, and or existing outside of space. The God of classical theism, a.k.a. monotheism, is a personal God. Yes, we can know that by the light of natural reason without recourse to any faith, any faith-based beliefs, any revelation or anything like that. Um, which seem to be pretty critical aspects of being a person, arguably at least. Oh, another thing I thought about, you know, because... Um, they like to think about like thought being this like special thing that isn't can't be like part of the physical is that it, it seems to be like an essential property of thought that it is like tense like it's like you know like moving through time and this is like right. Craig's main argument yeah, for yeah. a theory is like a psychological interpretation of like like the phenomenology of like our experience and um like i don't know how it's possible to say like god has these like atemporal thoughts by analogy we speak we speak in analogy because we're creature we are creatures we are not god we don't think with the mind of god we're striving to think with the mind of god with God's help, by, with God's grace, we're able to elevate and go beyond our limitations, right? That is the ultimate end goal. And we see, even among selfish sinners here below, the ability to go beyond the finite with our minds. Our minds are not material. Our minds are not natural. Our minds are supernatural. So... We have, obviously, the ability to know God, to love God, and to serve God in this life, right? Obviously. Um, because I just don't even know what that means. Now, there's not like a direct contradiction there. Or maybe that could be, like, you could say that it, thought can only take place in a tense sense. And God, God yes. With, yeah, I don't thought, thought requires a succession of mental states. Yeah, in finite creatures, sure. But not in God. And God right. doesn't have a succession of mental states. Uh, Jesus did. The God-man, Jesus Christ, in his human nature, had a brain. Um, because he's a temporal, therefore, you know, there's a, there's a contradiction there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of possibilities here. There's no contradiction between the finite and the infinite. There's no contradiction between creature and creator. There's no, con there's no contradiction between contingent and necessary. The contingent implies, logically and necessarily, implies the necessary being, the one necessary being. Okay. You boys need to go off and meditate on first things. Um, depending on exactly how you understand these, these different attributes. So I, I just sort of, I, I didn't want to make it too specific to a particular properties, but of course, if I wanted to, then I could make many more arguments, but I, I wanted to, <laughs> I yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. just make it a bit, a bit generic there. Yeah, um, I wanted to give the theist some escape, some room to, to escape. And... <laughs> we are generous. <laughs> yeah, so it's modal form of that, of course, because any, any properties God has, he has necessarily, so you can just make it a modal version. Uh, and abductive form is a little bit different. So theologians have been, theologians might disagree with one. It's more expected that I don't think I've come across like a proposed model of God where there aren't like, some pretty big questions about how the hell that is supposed to work because you could you could yeah. have like you could have like an argument from the fact that theologians can't agree um in intra theologian kind of like disagreement in, in the sense that like um 
there's all these different models of gods but 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 then you know just assuming any given model of god there are also like these issues um of whether whether it even like coheres with itself or with what they're committed to believing about the world through science and stuff like that yeah. well particular models of god will be subject to further objections right but you can't use objections to a very specific model of god as an objection to the existence of god simplicity yeah yeah right. a few of the arguments like maybe we a couple of them are specific to classical theism but that's that's because that's a very like widely held one but um yeah i i try to avoid well, this is actually arguments against Christianity, but I tried to avoid arguments that were specific to very particular form. There are a few there, but, but um, only if they're pretty commonly uh, held views about God. So anyway, yeah. Well, like I said about Calvinism earlier, people, even Christians, who are ostensibly Christian, ostensibly monotheists, obviously, uh, they're confused. They're wrong about God on very, very important fundamental issues, such as free will and grace. The Catholic Church has a certain amount, has given us a certain amount of freedom when it comes to exploring the interplay between free will and grace. But there is no freedom allowed to us by Holy Mother Church in terms of denying grace or denying free will. We have to accept both. We have to accept that counterintuitive tension that exists between free will and grace. But the Church gives us freedom not to deny either one or the other or to overemphasize one or the other, but the church gives us rather the freedom to explore how it might be that these two seemingly incompatible facts can work together, the fact of freedom and the fact of grace. The church gives theologians and the rest of us the freedom to explore that as long as we give the church the final word, the authority to declare if and when a declaration needs to be made. Uh, let's move on. Theological non-cognitivism. Now, this is also one I find interesting. Um... Which is religious what I happen to believe. <laughs> ah, oh, interesting. Religious utterances such as God exists do not express coherent propositions of truth values. Um, if the utterance of God exists does not have a truth value, there is no fact of the matter of God's existence. Christianity says there is a fact of the matter, at least implicitly, because they say God exists. Therefore, Christianity is false. Have you heard of the via negativity, the via negativa voice? So it's perfectly Catholic to say God exists and to mean it. That's a Catholic statement. It's also a Catholic statement, an equally Catholic statement to say God does not exist. It's called the via negativa, because our language is limited, our analogies are limited. And so we, when we say God is good, or God is not good, if you're a good, faithful Catholic striving to follow Jesus Christ, you can say both of those with equal weight and equal truth value. Because there is this thing called the via negativa, where we realize the incomprehensibility of God and the inexhaustible bounty of God and the limited nature of our minds and of our expressions and of our words, our propositions. Our faith does not terminate, as St. Thomas Aquinas famously said. Our faith does not terminate in propositions, but into the realities to which those propositions point, to which those propositions lead the mind. Okay? So I'm emphasizing this just because it came to mind, but premise one, religious utterances such as, quote, God exists, unquote, do not express coherent propositions with truth values. The via negativa would agree with you without taking anything away from monotheism, classical theism, Christianity, Catholicism. So you guys need to go a little bit deeper. There's a mystery with being God is so preeminently that words fail. Just saying God exists, when you're in that 
via negativa mode that uh, it fails, it fails. God does not exist. He's beyond that paltry expression, God exists, right? We need to go beyond. But when we take off our via negativa cap, we're just being colloquial, then of course God exists. Of course we can know with certainty that God exists. It's the only thing we can know with absolute certainty. And of course, from that one truth, we can deduce all kinds of things. We have a lot of certain knowledge. So any thoughts on why we should think that theological non-cognitivism is true? So one of the, the, the when I began to become convinced of this, it was actually when I was reading um, Blaise Pascal's, um, oh, what was it? Is it the thing that was found sewn in his shirt and then some, some other stuff that he's written where he's um, talking about, so, so Blaise Pascal, who was a um, famous like ma mathematician, um, did like conical, some work on conical sections, a theologian wrote the Pensees and uh, oh, what's it called? Pa Pascal's wager, that argument is like a hash of something that he said. And famously, where he, he was very de devout um, in his religious belief. And when he died, he was found with like a, a thing sewn in his jacket that he kept around with a that was dated. That was of a religious experience that he had that was um, very powerful to him. And he, he clearly like suffered with depression, stuff like that. Like you said, um, he was familiar obviously with the kind of mechanical sciences and said, you know, like the vastness of these empty spaces like terrifies me or something about the universe. But th this, this religious experience he says had, and I'm going to butcher the paraphrasing here, but it's something like, um, fire 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 god of abraham god of jacob not the god of the philosophers but you know like the, the god of israel my god my god and as i was like reading this i was like thinking this isn't particularly an argument this is just how, how i sort of became more convinced of this point of view it's like i was i was thinking yeah this seems to me like someone who is kind of depressed right and they're expressing their um emotional kind of experience of the world like their, their stance towards their, yeah. their existence and life it's called existential angst if you have never stared into the abyss and you're, it's no wonder that you are leaning on the reed, the broken reed that is soft solipsism and, uh, you know, your agnosticism in my second interview of you, Nathan, Nathan, and that you've fallen, fallen back from that agnosticism, from that soft solipsism. You've fallen, you've allowed yourself to fall back to an even weaker position, which is naive realism. You just take it for granted. Seems like the world exists. Prima facie. So let's just roll with it. Because that's what my neighbors are doing. That's what my friends are doing. That's what my peers are doing. And that's what all my heroes are doing. Right? Four horsemen of the new atheism and all the rest. Or whoever you hero worship, I have no idea. So you've fallen back on this naive realism because you've never truly stared into the abyss. You may have glanced over the edge when you were a soft, soft, soft solipsist, but you didn't stare intently into the abyss and feel that angst. I know, Nathan, I don't know you, James, but I know, Nathan, that you do suffer from depression. I know that you've got issues. I know that. But having chickened out at the edge of the abyss and fallen back to a very lazy worldview, which is based on, fundamentally on, naive realism. It hasn't done you any favors. It's that, that depression is going to haunt you. Pascal had the balls to stare into the abyss. He's a great and devout Catholic. And he knows where it's at. He knows his own limitations. He knows how overwhelming it is, this being per se being, being as such, 
the weight of it, the eternity of it, responsibility of it. He, he's encountered it. And he talks about the fire of the God of Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He talks about that fire because it's an existential apprehension. He confronted his own fears, his own mortality, his own finitude. And he took the leap, he took the leap of faith knowing who and what God is, knowing, having confronted the I am. So don't be bewildered and don't try to explain away his proclivity for the God of the Old Testament and his reluctance to fall into the academic world of defining God in the terms that philosophers like to use. I too love philosophy, but I had a genuine conversion experience when I experienced the abyss, when I stared into the abyss, when I had that genuine life-altering existential angst and anxiety. I don't think either of you have experienced that, and maybe you got close to the edge, maybe you peeked over the edge into the abyss, but you haven't stared into the abyss that's the difference through using this token of language god as like an expression of like in the face of this like mechanical and vast universe and like the depression that i have and stuff here, here's how i kind of like feel feel about it it's kind of like crazy and wild and i have like this this fire in my heart to try and live and stuff like that and i thought maybe that's actually what's going on here and then i started thinking about my own experiences with religion and stuff and what god had meant to me and you know like i never saw this material person in the sky it was more like this kind of like feeling that i had like of experiencing a good poem or you know like the start of the lion king when they sing that circle of life song God is not a big man in the sky. God is I am. God is being. Obviously, you've never confronted per se being. It's life-changing. So it's not a Disney movie. It's not a song. It's not a big man in robes walking on the clouds. Even though you can get some anthropomorphic descriptions of God that resemble that somewhat in the Old Testament. We need to go beyond the Sunday school imagery. We need to go beyond that, not to philosophical jargon, but to the fire, the fire in the burning bush. You need to stare into the abyss, boys. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, that, like there isn't a circle of life, but it's just like, you know, like it's just this emotional expression of like, yeah, the, like life's like this beautiful thing or whatever. And I think that that is the role that God might play in like a linguistic community. You can begin to yeah. tie it into like these more um, sophisticated articulations um, of what, what might be going on there. But but yeah, the, the, so a, a non-cognitivist is, is going to think that like, you know, people in church singing hymns and stuff like that, it, it's just kind of like the same as when you enjoy, you know, a, a good song and you're like, that's deep bro kind of thing. <laughs> like um, it's that emotional disposition. And, and I think even religious folk, when they, if they think about it, would be like, you know, like they'd say it's a heart issue. It's not the, the, the problem of sin. It's a heart issue. It's, it's like, um, and then you begin to psychologically identify um, sin and what's gone wrong with like um, with, with like trying to try to think about things in like in their propositional terms. Uh, whereas like there's this really powerful like you know like all the burning in the bosom, which is like this idea of God and triumph of the good, of good over evil and stuff like that. And I, th I think um, I think there's a lot to be said for that interpretation of religion. Now there's there's issues for it because then you're going to talk to like Christian philosophers and they're going to say, no, when I say God exists, I mean mm. these propositions. And they get the, and then the issue is going to be that you're going to say, well, I know your psychology better than you know yourself or something like that. And it's going to be it's going to be difficult to argue for. One of the analogies I think is most powerful when confronted with this kind of attack from the atheist, where they're saying it's just sentimental and 
either it's a cold philosophical meaningless definition you're just defining god into existence or you're just getting caught up in the emotional of a church service sentimentalism whatever it is okay that's a false dichotomy so the analogy that i like to use when confronted with this false dichotomy is the fact that two people can say the same words and I'm going to give you the exact phrase, but have a completely different experience of different existential connection to that phrase. The phrase is, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Or, I'm going to die. I will die. I shall die. The person who says it flippantly without thinking about it, without having had any brushes with death without having had much life experience other than just being a couch potato and uh, indulging in every base instinct, whether it be feeding the belly or expressing their lusts. That person doesn't have a real existential connection to death and therefore they don't have an existential connection to life they're not truly living they're not truly alive because they don't know what it is to live and they don't know what it is to die compare and contrast that lack of existential connection with someone that's been through tragedies someone that's rescued others from the jaws of death someone that has themselves been rescued from the jaws of death someone that's been through pain suffering bewilderment bewilderment, confusion, torture, imprisonment, betrayal, persecution. When that person who has an existential connection to the words says, I'm alive today, but tomorrow I may die. There's a weight there's a weight to those words. You may not feel it as a listener. You may not feel it as an interlocutor. But you, whether you're aware of it or not, it's there. There's a weight that's there. So these two people, the flighty, shallow person, God love them, and the person who has gone through a lot and has an existential connection to their life and to their death, they're both saying the same phrase. Yes, I know that one day I will die, and that day may be sooner than I think. They both say that phrase. There's an existential weight to one of them, and there's a vacuous, hollow, empty ring to the other. It's just words. It's just words. But I think... Um... I, I kind of think there's something to it in terms of like what's going on there. Like it seems to me like I, sorry, I've, I've, I've ranted a bit about, about about this one and, not, and perhaps not said, said much. But I think I think there's something to like theological non-cognitivism in terms of like um, how the how the word God is used by like yeah. the linguistic community, which seems to be as this like emotional utterance expressing our like um, compulsion towards doing the right thing and like what we think is best and uh, trying to overcome difficulties in life and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with the way theistic language is typically actually used, which I think can make a good argument in favor of this. Um, so that, yeah, that's I think you're raising good points there. Um, and yeah, it does also raise further question about the difference between God and the God of the philosophers, which maybe aren't even the same thing. Um, all right, of course, there's a modal form of theological non-communism. Um, now, next one, argument from the physicality of minds. So um, we've had sort of similar arguments before.
Uh, one moment. I'll just let this play. I'll be right back. Orbit. This is a bit a bit differently formulated. This is from an unreasonable faith. This one. <laughs> Mines require a physical substrate. God is purported to be mine without a physical substrate. Therefore, God does not exist. Yeah, not this exact form, but I do raise this point against the possibility of substance dualism. Um, so all all no, all minds that we know do require this physical substrate. So there's a lot of evidence that you can give in favor of one. Um, and theists agree with two. Pretty much all theists, at least. Um. And so again, the argument is, is this same Craigian thing again? Uh, the argument is valid. Premise two is widely accepted. So everything hinges on one. Premise one is more plausible than false. Therefore, we should, it follows logically and inescapably that God does not exist. You see how easy it is to play this game? I can do this all day. We're, we're only on 79 here. <laughs> I can do this all day. In fact, we are going to do this all day. <laughs> we are going to do it all day. <laughs> no idea. Uh, modal, oops, uh, hang on, let's head back. Modal formulation. So it is possibly necessary that minds require a physical substrate. Uh, it is possible uh, that minds require a physical substrate. By S5, therefore, minds require a physical substrate. God is born to be mind without a physical substrate, so he does not exist. And again, so one is even weaker. This, this one is even weaker than the previous first premise. So it's even more plausible. Uh, inductive form. Every known mind is dependent on a physical substrate. Even substance dualists agree with this because they, they agree that minds are dependent, at least human minds are dependent on a physical substrate. Um, but if that's but if every known mind is, and God is claimed to be one that doesn't have a physical substrate, we've got strong inductive evidence that there is no such there is no such mind. And finally, the abductive version. Every known mind is dependent on a physical substrate. The best explanation of why every known mind is dependent on a physical substrate is that all mind, there is no such mind. Let's back up just a little bit. I was just saying goodbye to my lovely wife there. All right, of course, there's a modal form of theological non cognitivism. Um, now, next one argument from the physicality of minds. So, um, premise one minds require a physical substrate. Minds require a physical substrate. Okay, that depends. I, I mean, our minds are not physical, but our human nature is both spiritual and physical. We have a supernatural mind, a supernatural soul in a physical, natural body. So do our minds require physical substrate well it's a dogma of the church that the soul is the form of the body so that might be true if you're talking about human beings but god is not a creature god is pure spirit god is not composed of parts god's essence is existence and god requires nothing right so if you're talking about creatures in premise one you could argue that. If you're talking about God, then no, you're wrong. We've had sort of similar arguments before, but this is a bit... And, of course, we see right away, premise two, God is purported to be a mind without a physical substrate. True. Therefore, God does not exist. Well, it depends if you were saying in number one, if you're sneaking God in there and saying he, his mind requires a physical substrate, then it's just false. And if you're excluding God from premise one, then you've but an invalid and unsound argument. A bit, a bit differently formulated. This is from an unreasonable faith, this one. <laughs> we know do require that God is not exist. So, yeah. <laughs> skip, skip, skip. But if that's the explanation of why, of course, you know, if, uh, I was going to say, if, if something like substance dualism is true, doesn't it kind of make, um, you know, like the whole theology of like Jesus being, the incarnation being like God's kinesis or whatever, his, his kenosis, kine I can't remember, the, the emptying of himself, um, whichever the theological term is that they use, and, and dying on the cross and stuff, isn't, um, doesn't it make that kind of trivial? Like, let's say Jesus like knew that substance dualism was true. Well, he's just like, well, I'm just a soul. Like, I don't care what you, like, if I knew I was like a soul, right? Um, I wouldn't really care about dying. Uh, um... In the incarnation, God took on a human nature. The second person of the Trinity, Trinity took on a human nature. And a human nature is body and soul. 
soul and body, natural and supernatural, physical and immaterial. So that's point number one. Point number two is that, well, if Jesus knows that death is not the end, then he shouldn't be worried about death. Well, that is absolutely correct, sir. Congratulations. You finally understood Christianity. The reason Jesus Christ was troubled in his human nature is because, well, first of all, suffering is repugnant to our human nature, right? That's number one. And more importantly, he's troubled by the betrayal of his creatures. He created the very people that were torturing and killing him unjustly. So he's worried about them that they are going to hell if they don't reform and they don't repent. That's why he said on the cross, forgive them, Father, they know not what they're doing. So his main concern, his main concern, Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ, his main concern is not the physical discomfort, the pain, or even the betrayal. His main concern is the salvation of the souls of those creatures that he made so generously, so lovingly. He wants all of his creatures, all of his rational creatures to be saved. It's too late for the angels, but the humans still have a chance to repent so long as they have the breath of life in them, just like the good thief said yes at the last minute. So get it straight, Nathan. Um, I just be like, yeah, do whatever you want with my physical stuff. Like, I'm just going to go and exist in platonic heaven with the forms, like... Well, to a certain extent, we can say, yeah, dispense, dispose of my body how you will. Uh, like St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine said, uh, I don't need a funeral. Do what you want with my body. I don't care. I'm going to heaven. Right. So in a certain sense, we can have that attitude as a saint. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that we are going to be reunited with our bodies in heaven after the final judgment for most of us. And meaning that uh, Mary already has her body in heaven, and Jesus has his body in heaven. Most of us won't get our bodies until uh, after purgatory. Sadly, I don't want to go to purgatory, but looking like I'll probably end up there unless uh, I can become a martyr of some sort, one sort or another. But my point here is that the body is good. We are made by God to have a body and so we have to steward not only the earth but we have to steward these bodies our bodies are temples given to us by God we have to make them temples of God by keeping them clean and healthy and safe and all the rest so that's important to bear in mind if you're a Christian um, so I'm going to push stronger than that you've just raised an interesting point here so if humans are souls then God didn't become human did he he didn't mm, become a human right soul God took on a human nature. A human nature is comprised of, wait for it, body and soul. Hello. And is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. He oh. just, God took, God took upon himself a human body, but he didn't become a human because a human is not a body, right? Or even any body uh, soul. It's just the soul is the human. This is what some of the substance will say. You are a soul. But if, if, if a, that's not the Christian teaching. A human being that just is a human type soul, then God could not have become human, not fully human. He just took on himself a body. God is fully human. The human nature that he took upon himself is united mysteriously with his divine nature. Just as in the human being, we have mysteriously united within ourselves by God, the immaterial soul, which is supernatural, and the material, natural body. 
We don't understand that, but we know that it's the case by natural light of reason. There are some Catholic saints and philosophers and theologists, even the saints, uh, some of them, like famously uh, Blessed John Duns Scotus, who is unwilling to say that we can know with certainty by the light of natural reason without recourse to faith that the soul is uh, immortal, that this is a question of faith. We can't reason to it, um, but uh, nonetheless, it is a fact that we have a natural body, a supernatural soul. But he still had a divine type soul, presumably. I never thought of that before. Yeah, I wonder how yeah. they would fit that. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. If God really did become human, then it seems that, like... The hypostatic union of the divine and human natures in Christ, that's the technical term, the hypostatic union. And there's another sort of uh, strong analogy that's made in the Blessed Virgin Mary because of her unity, her proximity, and intimacy with the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's, I, I believe it was Saint Maximilian Kolbe who emphasized this uh, hypostatic union that exists in Mary. Uh, I'll need to look into that to get the details, but it does ring a bell. I think that's what I read somewhere. To be human is to, like, to, be human is to have a human body. And, and obviously that'd be like, you know, like the suffering and stuff of, of um, Jesus' experience would still have happened. So they'd have that. But are they really going to say, I don't know, I don't know, like, it, it just seems from like his soul's point of view, like what's, what's actually going on? Like, so, so like, let's say after Jesus died on the cross, like what, what was his soul's experience then for a while? Was he just in platonic heaven? Was he, um, oh, well, he was in Hades. What does that mean? He's in Abraham's bosom. What about those who are like sleeping? You know, you know, those who are, those saints who have fallen asleep. What does yeah. that mean? Like, where are their souls? What are their souls doing? Are they just like, God's, God's actually, there's an even more like ad hoc thing. Oh, they're just chilling. Whereas, yeah, there's, there's like a metaphysical process where most souls, like, you know, like they die and they're in like soul heaven or whatever. But but for these souls who died before Jesus had died, who had to go to Abraham's bosom, those souls, God has to switch off. And then he switches them on after Jesus has died and make, and paid the price. That, like, it, it just is a big nonsense to me. Uh, of course, it's nonsense to you because you don't even know what the uncaused first cause is, the necessary being, the being whose essence is existence, that than which nothing greater can be conceived. You don't even grasp that right? Metaphysics 101. You don't grasp that. So obviously, you're not going to grasp Christianity. Stop trying. Yeah, I, I mean, there aren't explicit arguments here against substance dualism, um, apart from the ones that we've shown like the, like of this form. But um, I think, yeah, it does raise these additional problems about what happens to souls after death and how Jesus could have become fully human without a human soul or because then if you say, well, he God turned his soul into a human soul, but then then he can't be fully divine, right? If he divine is a divine soul. Well, I, I suppose just the, the there is no confusion or admixture. When the divine takes on the human nature, there's not a blending, a mingling, or anything else taking place. It's a hypostatic union. Fully God. Fully man. These are arguments from the physicality of minds, but then I suppose there's like arguments from assuming the non-physicality of minds that you get all these like weird contradictions with your theology and stuff that don't seem to make sense. Yeah, that, that, that's... So, Roe <laughs> that is the purpose of the stream. It is arguments against Christianity. Although some of the, some of the um, arguments do have a conclusion that God does not exist. But if you prefer, you could just say that the Christian God does not exist if you... Uh, I think that that's sort of more consistent. Yeah. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, oh, there's even a prima facie. I forgot about this one. We haven't seen a prima facie in a while. So every known mind is dependent on a physical substrate. The fact that every known mind is dependent on a physical substrate yields prima facie reason, prima facie evidence for thinking that all minds require a physical substrate. So therefore, we have prima facie reason to think theism is false. Um, interesting one there. All right. Now, this is another one I pinched from a, from um, a Philippe Leon's uh, list called The New Paradox of Omnipotence. So let me remind myself. What this has. According to theism, God's omnipotence is an intrinsic property that God necessarily has. So that's standard theistic view. However, omnipotence cannot be an intrinsic property since it can only be defined in relation to external tasks. Therefore, theism is false. Um, but this was my formulation of these arguments. So I think that 
you know, he had more to say about it than this, but I thought it was kind of interesting. According to theism, God's omnipotence is an intrinsic property that God necessarily has. True. Number two, however, omnipotence cannot be an intrinsic property. False. Since it can only be defined in relation to external tasks. It is an... It's not a necessary... The creation is not a necessity. God creates freely everything that God does uh, at extra is done freely. So the act of creation is done freely. And that freedom flows from the essence of God and the omnipotence flows from the essence of God. And like we discussed before, classical theism, aka monotheism, all of the pure perfections are identical among themselves and with God. So I'm trying to understand what they're saying here. Number two, omnipotence cannot be an intrinsic property. We know that's false, but why are they saying that? They're saying that because they think that it can only be defined in relation to external tasks. Omnipotence can only be defined in relation to external tasks. So, I, I'm i not sure why they're saying this, what they think they're accomplishing by saying this. I'll have to go away and think about it. But one thing is certain. This argument falls apart, regardless of the fact that I don't understand what they're saying in number two. I don't understand that. I'll need to think about that. But regardless of that, we know that it's the case that one is true. And we know that it's the case that God creates external to himself really, from his omnipotence. We know that. We know that with certainty. It's the way that philosophers like St. Justin Martyr came to be monotheists by the fact that we can know with certainty, by the light of natural reason, without recourse to faith, that God is omnipotent and that he created freely everything that is contingent. So we know this is false. I'm going to have to think about number two. Um, ah, super chats are on. Excellent. Um, so looking forward to all those big donors to support all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, if you want to donate, feel free to, but that's not really the point of these streams. Um, although if you want to make early trace left of faith, those arguments, like it's not, it's not happening. It's not happening in denial. <laughs> Bad apologetics episode 360. <laughs> We're still not captured. <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah. So I think premise two is interesting here because, um, if omnipotence is supposed to be intrinsic, how can you understand it without referring to anything outside? Like omnipotence is the ability to do all of these things, but those things are not <laughs> internal to God. Um, any thoughts on this, Nathan? You could say no. <laughs> well, not at the moment. I'm trying. I'm searching my my like. Well, I don't know if I've got COVID. My my disease riddled mind. Um, both in the in the mental health and the viral sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, what about in the atheism sense? <laughs> yeah, or in the sin sense. Agnosticism or non-cognitivist theism or whatever it is. Omnipotence <laughs> um, cannot be an intrinsic property since it can only be defined in relation to external tests. Yeah, I sort of. I don't know. I guess maybe. I mean, because there aren't really any constraints on. The kind of like speculative theology that theists engage in 
I guess we could like come up with, you know, like with some description of like a state yeah. of affairs, maybe where it works. But but I, I think I, I'm I'm broadly in agreement with it. Right? Oh, but like, then the burden is on the theist yeah. to provide an account that avoids this <laughs> yeah, premise. Yeah. And, and unless and until they do that, uh, I think that we can hold firmly to the conclusion here. Yeah. Yeah. I think they. this is the first time they've stumped me. This is an interesting, uh, this is the first time they've given me something to think about. So I appreciate that, boys. How can we say that God is omnipotent? And that's an intrinsic attribute. Well, all of his attributes are intrinsic. But how can we say that, given the fact that his omnipotence can only manifest in external tasks. His omnipotence only manifests ad extra. I'm going to think about that. I'm curious what the church says about this. What do the philosophers, the Catholic, faithful Catholic philosophers say about this? This is interesting. I'm going to have to think about this. I don't feel threatened by it because nothing can change the fact that the contingent implies the necessary and the caused implies the uncaused. So nothing can rock my my faith in God, and this is an attack against God. So zero threat level here, zero threat level, but there is some interest being sparked in this philosophical question. What is it about omnipotence? God's omnipotence. And the fact, the alleged fact, the ostensible fact that that omnipotence is only used ad extra. Or is it the case, is it the case that omnipotence is in fact required for having one's essence be existence. God does not cause himself per se to be, but God's reason for being is not in another, it's in his own being. Is that the omnipotence that's intrinsic? Is that, is the, is the act of being of God, is that an act of omnipotence? Well, yes, because all of the attributes of God are identical among themselves and with God, omnipotence is being, right? God is absolutely. So I think I've unraveled number two now. I didn't have to go away and think about it. I've unraveled number two. I've dismantled number two. I've deflated number two because all of the attributes are identical among themselves and they're all identical with God. Therefore, just like the principle of equivalence that Einstein came up with, whether it's true or false, I believe it's true, but a lot of what Einstein said, I believe, is false, obviously. But much like that E equals MC squared, matter is energy, it just is energy. There's... We can neither create nor destroy, according to the first law of thermodynamics, and I, I studied physics, I believe in the three laws of thermodynamics. I don't believe in them absolutely. But uh, they may be immutable laws of nature. I don't know. I, that's my hunch. I can't prove it. But just as we have the principle of equivalence, where matter can be neither created nor destroyed according to the first law of thermodynamics, therefore there's just a 
change from one state to another, matter, energy, matter to energy, energy to matter. It's also the case that truth is justice, and justice is beauty, and beauty is health, and health is goodness, and goodness is unity, and so on and so forth. That's just the way it is in the life of God. It's just the way it is. So I'm not going to have to go off and think about this. I think I've understood it now. Omnipotence is an intrinsic property of God, and it's identical with his being, his being, which is... Uh, which is its own reason, right? According to the principle of sufficient reason, one can have one's being in oneself, aka God, or from another, aka creature. So that's it. I don't have any homework assignment for this one. We can move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paradox omniscience. Um so this is an interesting one. It is impossible to fully know what it is like to experience something without having the corresponding first-person experience. Now, this is a premise that many theists will make because they use this as an argument for dualism or non-materiality of mind. Right. Yeah. Now, but God has never committed a sin. So therefore, God does not know what it is like to sin. But theism yes. claims God knows everything. Therefore, theism is false. This is a fun one. Uh, this is uh, false. God... I mean, okay, let's go through one by one. Number one, it is impossible to fully know what it is like to experience something without having the corresponding first-person experience. I would weakly, possibly, maybe agree with that, but it's irrelevant because we've got other fish to fry here. Number two, God has never committed a sin. That is absolutely true. Number three, God does not know what it is like to sin. God knows everything. Okay, so this is why atheists don't know how to think straight because they... They know, they should know, that God knows everything. This is not rocket science. So, God knows everything. So, why are you putting... <laughs> why are you putting a statement here, number three, God does not know what it's like to sin. God knows what it's like to sin. God knows me, my behavior, my actions, my attitudes better than I do. Right? God has been there in my deepest, darkest, secret, sexual sins, masturbation, whatever it was, okay? God was there with me. He knows it better than I do, okay? He's not bashful and shy about masturbation or defecation or rape, murder, whatever. Whatever his creatures get up to, the sickest wars, violence, sexual perversion, God is there experiencing all of it in his own way, in a way that is superior to our way. Our way is finite, clumsy, forgetful, and uh, we're not really experiencing it fully. God knows everything about every creature's experience. That mosquito that you swatted and smashed and killed on your leg, when you're at the cottage, God experienced that. God was in that experience of the mosquito. God, in a certain sense, lives that eternally. The life of that one mosquito is history. Where did he come from? What were his parents like? And so on and so forth. Okay? God loves that mosquito. And you killed that mosquito. Are you going to hell because you killed that mosquito? It depends what you're... Uh, what your intention was 
Did you have goodwill? Or were you confused and you thought you were murdering a sentient being that was free and rational? When I kill a mosquito, I feel a little bit bad. But I know the mosquito is just a pest. It's guaranteed to go to heaven if that's what God wants. Will not go to hell, guaranteed. If there are mosquitoes in heaven, they will not be annoying. They will not be pests. They will not be vectors for disease. And they will not be weaponized by sick and demonic overlords of this sick and demonic planet. They will not be weaponized in heaven. Do you understand that? My hunch is that there will be mosquitoes in heaven. That's my hunch. And they'll be very cute. And we can explore them just like we can explore every other marvelous part of creation. So God knows what it's like to be a mosquito. God knows what it's like to be a human being, a sinful human being. God knows very well, better than any human, any non-divine human. I think yeah. this is the biggest way this is like, whether God knows what it is like to sin. This is like the pan... Uh, I know it's a panpsychism, the pantheism uh, type thing as well, where it's like, you know, there's this creator-created distinction, but God also doesn't, God also like, doesn't know what it's like to be you, but there are some facts about what it's like to be you. Um, some yeah. quite irreducible quailia facts. Um, yeah, so I, I actually think this is a good argument, or at least, you know, you could maybe tweak it a bit, but the, the, the fundamental point that's being driven out here is, is, uh, is, is quite a relevant one. Because um, it would seem to, like, maybe this is another example of inconsistent properties argument. So suppose you say, suppose you deny that, um, uh, God needs to, I, I haven't put that explicitly in here, but suppose you deny that God needs to have knowledge of, of what it's like to sin to count as being omniscient. Um, but then it seems like that there's things that God doesn't know, which could actually be quite important. And so there'd be a greater being that does know those things. On the other hand, if you say that God does have that knowledge, then you might say, well, that does that detract from the omnibenevolence of God, knowing what it's like to do all these sins. I like, think about all the heinous sins that God knows what it's like to do. Like that's, that seems to detract from his majesty and, and beneficence, right? So like maybe you can, you can draw out that tension that way. Nothing detracts from God's greatness, his goodness, or his magnificence or anything else sovereignty innocence purity chastity nothing god has seen every porn film every internet porn site every snuff film all the pedophilia everything the sickest stuff god has seen all of it all god knows more about that sick stuff than any individual human, any group of humans, all humans collectively throughout history. God knows everything. He's not contaminated by the sick and evil perversion of his creatures. Because guess what? Everything, everything is ontologically good. Everything. Examine a child snuff porn film where they're torturing and raping and killing innocent babies and infants and children. Everything about it is ontologically good. It's falling away. The way that it's done is wrong. There used to be an expression back in the late 90s, early 2000s. You're doing it wrong. Well, that's what God says to us. We're doing it wrong. But everything that we crave, every everything that Satan offers the sick pervert that's making snuff films and selling them to get his drugs and sex, whatever he's into. 
everything that's being produced, everything that that person is craving is good. Satan's offering the good gifts of God. Intimacy is good. Innocence is good. Pleasure is good. Sex is good. Now, I say these people are not having sex, right? When you're doing anything other than Catholic sex, meaning one man, one woman, natural man, natural woman, married, committed to each other, giving to each other completely without reservation for the love of God and within openness to life, new life. Anything other than that, Catholic sex, anything other than that is just a more or less sophisticated form of masturbation. It's just a more or less sophisticated form of masturbation. That's all it is. We have fancy names for it. Oh, he's an adulterer because he went, he was married and he went and slept with someone else. Or he wasn't married, but he met, he married, he had sex with someone that was married. Or he's a home, this guy's a homosexual because he has sex with other men. Or this guy's a swinger because he goes and has group sex. Right? Or this guy's a rapist because he has sex with women that don't give consent. Or whatever. All of these labels, adulterer, rapist, swinger, homosexual, these labels, they're useful. But it's a shorthand to say he's having sex with men, this guy's having sex with children, this, ha this guy's having sex with someone who's married. The word sex that they're using there, they're using it in a very loose sense. I would say they're not having sex in any of those perverted contexts. They're masturbating, masturbating into the butthole of a child or into the mouth of a hooker or into the hand of a gay gentleman or whatever, <laughs> whatever these guys get up to. I mean, it is sickening to think about it, but I understand they want intimacy, they want pleasure, but you're looking for love in all the wrong places, people. It's mainly men, but I mean, women, I guess, also have their own sexual fantasies and desires that are perverted and you can't just protect women out of a naive sense that only men are horny, sick, and perverted, right? So men and women are looking for love in all the wrong places, but the things they're seeking, that intimacy, the pleasure, the power, you know, is a big part of a lot of the sexual perversion is power. I mean, another category is incest. All of these things. I understand all of the ontological goodness that's involved. Even in the torture, rape, and murder, and uh, the violent parts, okay? Even in there, there is nothing that is not ontologically good, because the things are ontologically good. But the way you're going about it is evil, falling away from good. St. Augustine famously said, evil is not a thing, but it's a way. It's a way of doing, it's a way of being. And that's because goodness is defined as being, is defined in terms of being. That's why God is the highest good, because he preeminently has existence, being, life. Satan and his minions, I don't know who is the lowest of the low, in the hierarchy of hell. It's tempting, it's really tempting to say Satan is the lowest of the low in hell. He suffers the most, he's the most 
heinous, the most evil, meaning that he lacks good to the most preeminent degree. It's tempting to say that, and I think that might be what the church teaches, what the theologians agree on, or I don't know if there's uh, any solid teaching on this. But part of me thinks that we can expect the unexpected and that human beings, because of the privileges that we've been given by God, the second chances that we've been given, the third chances, the fourth chances, the fifth chances, the sixth chances, the infinite, almost, almost infinite chances that some humans are given by God with all the graces, the actual graces, sufficient for conversion. Because of that, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if Satan really is the the lowest of the low. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. It could be. Because of the mystery of iniquity is so, so bewildering. How could a bright and beautiful seraphim angel in the highest of the highest, how could he have fallen? So perhaps he is the lowest of the low. God only knows, and uh, perhaps at the final judgment, we will get to see the hierarchy, right? I think we're going to get to see even the hierarchies in heaven and in hell. And we're going to know our place, our place in heaven, God willing, or our place in hell. And if we do, God willing, make it to heaven, we will, I think, be able to see that place that was prepared for us in hell by Satan and his demons, specially designed for each one of us. So it's interesting, but it's also very spiritually profitable to meditate on the four last things. Death, judgment, and then heaven and hell. Which way do you want to go? I think the choice is clear. So I'm pro-choice. I want you to choose, but I want you to choose wisely. Choose life. <laughs> well, you could write the tension this way. Does God know what it's like to have gay sex? <laughs> yeah, I just went through all that. God knows everything about everything. And the reason it doesn't disgust him is because everything is good. He looked at creation, he saw all the gay sex, and he said, it's very good, ontologically. He also, in his justice, punishes those who choose lower goods over higher goods, right? We have relative goods to choose among here, and we have to work it out with fear and trembling, which, what's the higher good, the highest good among the options, and choose that. Even though it's painful, it's inconvenient, it's annoying, it's boring, it's not as exciting as the other stuff, right? So God knows about all of his creation, all how it all played out. And he said, it is very good. Doesn't mean that when we turn away from God, when we fall away from goodness and being a truth and justice and goodness, and purity and chastity, when we turn away from that and the source of that, which is God, doesn't mean that we're not going to be suffering the consequences God said it's very good, but that very good assessment included the very good justice that's meted out to sinners, unrepentant sinners. It's very good. That's why when we're in heaven looking down on our loved ones burning in hell, we're not disturbed in the slightest because we understand how it's all very good. It's not like this naive um, Sunday school depiction where we say, oh, in the creation story, God said it's all dark. Oh, and God was angry. 
No, God is outside of time. God created time. He is not unaware of any eventuality. So when God said it is very good, he meant it and he meant all of it. Because he's not stuck in time. He's not on the edge of his seat waiting, watching and waiting to see how we're going to mess up. He knew how and when and where and why each and every one of us would choose for him and choose against him. All the consequences that are entailed by that. Okay. <laughs> what do you think, Nathan? Does he know or does he not? Um, I mean, Jesus kept, you know, a few, a fair few guys around. Um, 12 of them, I, I think. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, have you ever seen, um, what's the Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, Jesus Christ Superstar? Have you ever... So I don't understand. They're going to claim that they're apes. These atheists, these moron, moronic ape monkey bots are going to claim that they're apes and that there's nothing wrong with being a homosexual, right? Get the, let's, let's get this straight, okay? Nothing wrong with being an unrepentant homosexual. Nothing wrong with it. It's not perverted, right? That's what they want to say out of one side of their mouth. And they're going to turn around now and snigger and laugh as they mock the God-man Jesus Christ and they accuse him of being a flaming homosexual. Okay? So, can you spot the hypocrisy? Can you spot the cognitive dissonance here? Pick a side. Okay? Either you're just a beast and lust is good. Doesn't matter. A hole's a hole's a hole is a hole is a hole. And masturbation and porn and prostitution and abortion and gay sex and all this stuff is just healthy and good. It's women's health and it's men's health and it's all just natural and good. And the apes do it so we can do it too. Or you think it's worth giggling about the prospect that Jesus Christ might have been having gay sex with his 12 apostles. Like which which way do you want to go with this? Because you're an atheist. You can do whatever you want. Okay. Your only dogma is, it is what it is. So go to town one way or the other. But it seems like you're a little bit uncomfortable with your own teachings, right? When it comes to things like sexual perversion. If you're going to mock and ridicule Jesus Christ for being, as you would suggest, uh, homosexual. While defending the dignity of sodomy, right? No, have haven't. you ever watched that? I actually, I, I only watched it um, a couple of months ago because V V really likes likes it as a musical. But I actually think it's like fr from a historical perspective, it, it's pretty interesting. Like Judas is like kind of like so Jesus is like this apocalyptic prophet, and Judas is kind of like, come on, Jesus, it just started out as this, and now it's gone too far, and it's all kind of like going <laughs> to Jesus's head. You know, like the stuff right. that people people are like telling him, and um, but there's also quite a lot of like sort of like homoerotic tension there as well between the um, between the apostles as well. I I I think when I think when people dramatize like the kind of like historical elements of the gospel narrative so there could be like scope for um a lot of like homoerotic types stuff going or like you know like at least a sexual tension there like you've got to imagine like 12 guys who are like sleeping together and stuff and they're not you know like they're all i, I guess some some of them are married right um but are their wives coming with them i i mean i i, I don't know yeah there's, there's, there's stuff going on maybe i i, I don't know um in terms of this is also one of the things, the objections that um, Muslims raise against Christianity and the incarnation is yep. the, like, um, does God know, you know, like, God knows what it's like to, like, wipe his ass and stuff and, like, God poos and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, is it a sin to excrete 
the undigested parts of your meal? I mean, is that a sin? I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand uh, the, like, it's okay to sodomize your fellow man, male or female. That's okay, according to you, right? Your worldview. But it's not okay to excrete the waste products from the food that you're taking. What, how is that sinful? Especially given the fact that not only do you not have a choice, but if you, for some reason, are unable to excrete, excrete the waste products, you're going to die from that fact, right? So do you love truth? Do you love justice? Do you love beauty? Do you love health? Because it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> not reading that one out. You can enjoy that watching the video. I mean, I know some people have said they want me to read out, uh, read out chats more often, but... I, mean, I, guess, I guess it's kind of crude, right? It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of crude, but I do think that they, doing stuff like this goes a way to kind of like destigmatizing, like being gay and stuff like that. Because I, I genuinely... Oh, here he goes with the apologetics. Like, oh, I think there's nothing wrong with being gay. Right? You're just giggling like a schoolboy talking about how crude and crass it is to suggest that uh, Jesus was a homosexual and he took a dump and wiped his ass. Right? Like, you, you, you're like a, like a child giddy with your puerile rebellion giddy and proud proud of your little jokes and now you're going to launch into a defense of sodomy watch this i don't think there's anything wrong with it and if i if i were from first principles to try and figure out what a god would be like like why would it be like a slur to be like is that god gay like you know like why why would that be off the table yeah, and not just that, but destigmatizes asking serious theological questions as well. That a lot of people are just like, oh, it's impolite to ask about that. Well, right. I mean, maybe in certain contexts it might be, but not in this sort of stream. So we're asking the question. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's valid. It's not impolite. It's a dogma of the Catholic Church, and I think that monotheists everywhere agree that sodomy is wrong, adultery is wrong, rape is wrong. All these things are wrong. Right? Why? Because we have a nature, we have a human nature, and men are men. They were created with a male nature and a male physiology, anatomy, and women likewise with their women physiology and anatomy, and a female nature. Right? Different roles, different responsibilities, and uh, this is undeniable. So when we think about Marriage, the family, intimacy, sex, childbearing, raising children in the family, educating the children. It all becomes rather useless and completely undermined if you start divorcing love from pleasure, right? You start divorcing that. The unity of man and woman, and the ability and the openness to life which comes with procreation. When you start divorcing those two things through contraception, through abortion, which is just an elaborate and demonic form of contraception, I guess, then the whole question becomes moot about intimacy and about... Uh, Marriage, the family, children. I mean, I've always said that there is absolutely no basis 
for the atheist to argue against, well, obviously to argue against anything, because arguments imply God, but just on the surface level, if you're going to argue against male-on-male -male incest, father and son, grandfather and grandchild, they claim to love each other, they claim that the pleasure is good, they claim that they gave consent, they claim that it was wonderful in every way, shape, and form. And there's zero risk of birth defects, even though they're related. Why? Because a man cannot impregnate a man. Hello? Right? So why is it taboo? Why? Tell me, why is it taboo for father and son? And why not throw in uh, the grandfather too? All three of them going at it doing a little circle, and uh, they're sodomizing each other and engaging in all kinds of quote-unquote pleasure. What's wrong with that? Tell me. As an atheist, tell me what's wrong with that. All you can say is, it is what it is. It's a sick, sick religion you belong to, boys. Uh, all right, um, so paradox of omniscience. Of course, there's a modal version of that. Um, the problem with divine hiddenness is... Okay, so we're going to leave it there. I will continue. Uh, we have gone over two hours, and I don't want to stretch it out too far. So thanks for being here. Take care of yourself. We'll talk soon.